0: Hey, good morning I think Paul Fogle thinks he's funnier than he really is by the way I love the guy but I don't know I think he's got to work on his material a little bit more so anyway no I'm just kidding he's a good friend of mine so I can give him a hard time and uh and say that the way I can say that to him I'd tell it to his face if he was still here maybe no he's not here okay good all right, hopefully he's not watching on video. His wife would agree, though, too, with us, and is for sure his teenage daughter definitely, definitely would agree. So, anyways, hey, I just want to say welcome. Welcome this morning. It's great to be here. It's great to hang out together. It's just good to be a family, right? Like, it's just good to have like, a place where we can go and, and we can be a family together. Uh, but families, like, when we're together, we also, you know, one of the things I love about having a family is we get to challenge each other. And this morning, what I want to do is <clears throat> I want to offer a challenge to us. And I don't think the challenge is a monumental challenge that you should be like freaking out and heading to the exits really soon. Um, but maybe a challenge isn't the right word. Maybe, maybe, a, um, maybe a better word would be an invitation. Okay, An invitation for us in the way that I believe God might be calling us to live our lives and to lead where he calls us to lead. Um, into the future as a church okay and so to do that i want to start with just a question and i want you to think about this question i want you i'm not just throwing this out there so you just hear it and move on and even if you want to write this question down um you you could definitely do that or or put it in your phone whatever you need to do but here's my question for you is jesus enough for you simple question right but i want you to think about that for a second is jesus enough for you Maybe another way of asking that question would be, what do you want your life to be remembered for? And would Jesus be the focal point of what is remembered? And as you think about those questions throughout our message and throughout our time together, I'm going to share a few stories um, from my own life, uh, stories from Scripture. And really what we're going to talk this morning about is the words defining moments? We're going to talk about what does it look like for us to have defining moments, and I'm going to share a story about a person who I believe had an, a really significant defining moment, and his name is uh, Bishop Alipin. Has anyone ever heard of Bishop Alipin before? Okay, no one, no one. Perfect, awesome. That's re- no, that's really good actually, but it's almost kind of sad though because. When I tell you this story, you're you're gonna wish that you knew more about Bishop Alipin because of just the difference that he made for the kingdom of God. It's it's absolutely significant. See, Bishop Alipin um, is a person that um, that came around uh, in around 635 A.D. In 635 A.D., Bishop Alipin and 24 other priests from Syria felt like God was calling them to go to China. Now, when we think of China and we think of missions and we think about people going there, who do we think of? Hudson Taylor, right? Like, he's, he's kind of the famous person that a lot of people think of. But Bishop Alabin felt like God was calling him to bring the love of Jesus to the people of China in 635 A.D., And if you you just put yourself in his shoes, 635 AD, none of us, okay, I'm not even going to joke about that one. Nobody was alive then, okay? We all, none of us can imagine what life was like in 635 AD, but we can imagine what it would be like if we felt like God was calling us to go to a place like China when nobody had ever been there. And not just to go there on vacation, but to go there with the good news that Jesus can change our life. And so Bishop Alaban, along with 24 other people, went to China to share the love of Jesus with the people of China. And he prayed that somehow, some way, he would be able to sit in front of the emperor and share the love of Jesus with the emperor, Taizong. This, me- this message, when he sat down with the people of China, went over so well that he did find a seat at the table with the emperor. And when he sat and shared with the emperor of China... The emperor of China received his message in such a way where he gave his life to Jesus. This is not a made up story. This is a story from our history. And not only did the emperor give his life to Jesus, but the emperor completely changed his perspective on how he was going to live his life. And he declared that Christianity was the religion, as he called it, the religion of light. And he demanded that churches be built all over China. So much of Taizong's life had been changed that he announced that all the people in China should connect and trust their life to this one true light, which is Jesus. He also made it clear that to make this kind of change, the people of China would need to cut themselves off from their old religious gods that once ruled their life amazing. And for over 200 years, this message of the hope and the life that people can find in Jesus took over all of China. The people even built a huge statue to honor Alipin, and it still can be found in China today. Now, I don't think it would be a stretch for me to say that what Bishop Alipin did with his life and what he did in China was one of the most significant, defining moments in his own personal life. And I'm also quite confident that there were probably many times where Bishop Alipin thought that what he was called to do before he ever did it would never happen. Again, imagine being in his shoes and imagine feeling this call to go to to these people in a far-off land and share the love of Jesus with them. My guess is that there were probably many moments in his journey, even on the way to China, where he felt like turning around and quitting before he ever started. It probably felt overwhelming. He was probably filled with fear. After all, what he was attempting to do with these 24 other priests was absolutely 100% impossible to do without the intervention of God. God, without God stepping in and doing what Alipin could never do in his own strength. But because of Bishop Alipin's connection to Jesus, because of his connection and love for Jesus, he shifted his life in a way that led him on a journey to China from the Middle East. Well, in China, this connection was so evident that God used him and others to help lead all these people to Christ, help all these people believe in Jesus, to celebrate communion. Imagine that. Can you imagine going there all these people give their life to Jesus and now you're literally like celebrating communion with these people? Imagine what that would do. It'd be powerful. They prayed together. They baptized new Christians. Literally revival broke out all over a country that most people thought could not be touched with the gospel. In 635 A.D., And the impact of this defining moment paved the way for many others like him throughout history. And Hillcrest, I share this because I believe, I know this happened a long time ago, but I believe if Bishop Alipin and his 24 priests from Syria could go and do something like this, what could God do with us, right? Like, I believe that God has defining moments for you and for me. He has these opportunities that he has right in front of us, both individually and us as a church, that he wants to use us to make a difference for his kingdom. And maybe he might send us to China. Sure, that could happen. All right. Hey, weebies, if you're watching, welcome. It's good to have you guys here. Um, But he might not send you to China. He might just send you to your own neighborhood. He might send you to the work that you find yourself at. He might send you to the school that you go to. He might send you to the gym that you go to. He might send you on a walk through your neighborhood or at the park. Who knows? Who knows where he's going to send you? But I believe that God has defining moments that he wants us to experience with him so that we can then go and take the love of Jesus to other people. According to Forbes, a defining moment is a point in your life when you're urged to make a pivotal decision Or when you experience something that fundamentally changes you, not only do these moments define us, but they have transformative effect on our perceptions and on our behaviors. Man, can we just pray for these kind of moments, these defining moments in our life? And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at two stories from Scripture. Scripture. Two stories from scripture where people had a defining moment with Jesus that they would never forget. And as we look together at these defining moments, I want to invite you to embrace this one simple truth found in both stories. That no matter what the circumstances that are surrounding you right now, Jesus is forever enough for you that no matter what the circumstances are around you, no matter how messy your life is right now, no matter what is going on that might seem out of control, we at Hillcrest Covenant Church believe that Jesus is enough. We don't need to add anything else. He's enough. And so as we look at these two defining moments, I want to invite you to just let these words from Scripture Soak deep into your soul. Not just like kind of look at them from a distance. Kind of like, like, do we have any tea drinkers here? Any tea drinkers? Okay, a few of you are tea drinking. I'm not really a tea drinker, but once in a while I'll, I'll, I'll get some tea. And one of the things I've learned about tea drinking, if I can say this, I'm definitely not an expert, but there's a difference between some tea drinkers. Some people that like to drink tea, I've noticed, and I find myself being this person sometimes, is they like to be dippers. You got any dippers here? You get your tea bag and you got your hot water and you kind of just dip it in and you pull it out and you dip it in and you pull it out and you dip it in and you pull it out and eventually you got tea, right? Like there's some people that are dippers. I want to say this is that like, if I can use that as an analogy to just say, can we not be tea dippers when it comes to the way we live our faith? Where we just kind of dip in on Sundays And then we come out and we just say, hey, you know what? I'll dip back in next Sunday, right? That doesn't do us any good. That's not what we're talking about today. What we're talking about is what I'm learning about tea drinking is that that there, there are the people that are, I don't even know what they're called, but I would say immersers, okay? Those that you take the tea bag out and you don't dip, you just drop it in and you let it just sit in the hot water because when it sits in the hot water, what does it do? What is it? steeps. There you go. It's steeps. See, I'm not, I just can't talk tea. But, but, I, but, but I can get the analogy here because I think that is the kind of life that God calls us to live. To not be just a dipper, but to be someone that just sits and let the water do the work and just immerse ourselves in what God can only do and what God can only produce. And so the first defining moment that I want to talk about is one that's very familiar to us. It's Palm Sunday today. We celebrate it. In the first service, we had kids like running all throughout the sanctuary, waving their branches. Maybe you remember doing that as a kid or your kids did that. It's kind of a tradition. But I believe there's some truth, if not a lot of truth, and, and certainly a defining moment that we need to come face to face with in the story of Palm Sunday. So if you have your Bibles and you want to open up and join us, um, open up to Mark chapter 11. And we're going to read, I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 10. It says this, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. While others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hillcrest, Jesus was like the master communicator. He knew what he was doing. And what's so powerful about this story right here and what's so powerful about Palm Sunday that we get to celebrate today is what is taking place in this text. Here we have Jesus. He's hanging out with his disciples. They're on their way to Jerusalem and Jesus is about to make an incredible defining moment statement to the people. And as they approach Jerusalem, Jesus turns to a couple of his disciples and tells them to do something that's kind of odd. He's like, hey, go go to that village over there. And go just find a random colt. Actually, there's not a random colt. There's just, you're going to find one tied up. And untie it, bring it to me. If someone asks you what's going on, just tell them it's for the Lord. Right? Like, what a random thing for Jesus to say. Right? Like, if I was a disciple and Jesus said that to me, and I feel like at this point, I would have a pretty good relationship with him where I could mess with him a little bit. I'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, like Jesus, come on. But no, it's really what happened. These guys who went and they found a colt, just like Jesus said. And they brought the colt back to Jesus. And Jesus got on the colt. And he rode into Jerusalem. And it says as he enters Jerusalem, there's this huge crowd of people that have gathered around him. And they're all freaking out because Jesus is there. They're so excited. And they're shouting at the top of their lungs and waving palm branches, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They're so excited to see Jesus. And it's at this point that I believe These people had a defining moment with Jesus. But to understand this defining moment, it's it's important that we understand some Jewish history. Otherwise, it just seems like everybody's saying the same thing, which they were. But to understand a little bit about Jewish history will help you understand what's going on in this text. You see, this was a defining moment because in 167 BC, the king of Syria, his name was Antiochus. Antiochus is not a name that any of you should ever name your kid, okay? All right? Just don't name your kid Antiochus. If it's tempting, just trust me. Don't do it. Antiochus was not a good person. He was a terrible human being. And Antiochus was convinced that it was his duty to force the people to the Greek way of life. He wanted the Greek way of life to be the Roman way of life. He wanted people to think the Greek way, their religion to be the Greek way. He wanted whatever else he could do that was necessary to bring the Greek way of life to the Roman people. That's what he wanted. And so he forced it upon the people. And his mode of getting his message across to the people was by using any method of force to do it. So for instance, if you had a copy of the Holy Law, the scriptures, you could be killed. If you circumcised your kid, you could be killed. They were all things that were punishable by death that Antiochus put into play. He also disrespected, disrespected the temple. He didn't like anything that had anything to do with worship of the coming Messiah. So much so that he, that he made a decree that people had to worship the God of Zeus instead of the coming Messiah. He would offer pigs as sacrifices on the altar just to spite the Jewish people. Basically, he did everything he could to wipe out the Jewish faith. And so it was during that time that there was a man by the name of Maccabee. Now, if you're going to name your kid, Maccabee might be a cool name, okay? And Maccabee rose to power. And Maccabee put together an army that eventually defeated Antiochus. And after he defeated Antiochus, something really interesting happened. Maccabee came riding into Jerusalem. And you know what the people did? They were excited to see him, right? And they all came out and they all lined the streets and they all had palm branches actually in their hands. And they greeted him. They laid their cloaks on the ground and they waved palm branches and they shouted, guess what? Hosanna. Which literally means, save us now. So here you have Jesus. He enters Jerusalem. All the people come out. They're all excited to see him. And they're all shouting the same thing. They're all shouting, save us now. But the reality was, is that even though they're all shouting the same thing, they didn't all mean the same thing. Because some people knew Jewish history. And some people, as Nate referred to last week, thought that Jesus was coming to overthrow the Romans. He wasn't coming because he was the Messiah. He was, become, he was coming because he was this like conquering hero that was going to overthrow the army and lead with some kind of force. But that wasn't Jesus' plan. And as Jesus came riding in, He came riding in, not on a big horse. What did he come riding in on? A colt or a donkey. And the symbolism of that is that I am coming in peace. You see, Jesus was sending a message to the people that I, number one, am coming in peace. Number two, I'm coming because I am the Messiah. And he was defining He was having a defining moment with the people. He was looking them in the eyeballs. He was looking right into their hearts. And he's saying, hey, listen, I have come that you might have what? Life to the fullest. I have come. I am the word that has become flesh. And I am literally walking right amongst you. And I am here because I'm the savior of the world. And so it's no wonder why a few days later, people did what? They crucified him because Jesus wasn't who they thought he was going to be for some of the people. And so my question for you as we think about this first defining moment that these people had (coughs) with Jesus was what do you want Jesus to be in your life? Like really think about that for a second. What do you want Jesus to be in your life? Do you want him to be the person that bails you out of your problems and your trouble? Or... Do you want him to be your Savior, your Messiah, the Lord of your life? Because I promise you that if you and I have that defining moment with him where we say, Jesus, you know what? I realize now that you did not just come here to earth to take up space, to be this, to overthrow the Romans, whatever. Like, like you have come so that I might have life, that I might have life to the fullest. And the only way I can have that life is through you. And so my question for you as the band comes forward is what do you want Jesus to be in your life? And we're going to sing a couple songs and as we sing those songs I want you to wrestle with that question because it's easy to say oh I want him to be my savior I want him to be my Messiah but do we really do we really fully understand what that means? And if we do and if we're willing To take that step, I promise you it would be the greatest defining moment of your life. But we need to really think about that. And maybe for those of you that said, hey, I've made that decision. Then I want to challenge you to ask this question. Okay, so am I truly living that out? Am I truly living it out as if Jesus is my Savior, my Lord, and he's the one that calls the shots? So let's take a moment to process that as we sing these songs. And then when we come back, I'm going to talk about another defining moment that I believe can connect with each of our lives as we think about what it means to follow Jesus with everything we have. So as we talk about our next defining moment, I want to tell you a story about a time when, when I was um, in Brazil. You've heard me tell a lot of stories about Brazil. Claude's happy about that. Um, but there's this one time in particular where... This question of who do you want Jesus to be in your life um, was asked, but it was, it was one of those moments where I asked it to someone, and I don't know if I've ever been more scared to ask the question. Okay? Have you ever been in those moments where, where you're scared to ask someone a question? Um, what, what happened was, um, we were partnering with Clarissa's church in Rio de Janeiro, and we were going into the favelas, and we were spending time in the favelas with this pastor, and this pastor was connected to everyone. And one of the groups of people that this pastor was connected to, and I've shared some of these stories before, but I've not shared this one, was um, the drug lords of this community. Um, these guys, for whatever reason, um, really enjoyed getting to know this pastor, and so when we went to this favela, which a favela, some people use the word slums, but it's a much nicer way to say favela. Um, it's a nicer way of saying it, but it, favelas, if you imagine, like a really steep, big hill, and there's just houses just built on top of each other going all the way up the hill. And at the top of this hill, in this favela, was this church. And so every day we would go to this church, and throughout the time that we were there, we got to know a lot of these guys from this community of people that were all like the drug lords of the community they ran the favela and and I'll never forget like every time we would go to the favela the police would stop us before we'd start walking up there and they'd tell us oh no you don't want to go up there you don't want to go up there it's so dangerous and because they have all these like drug lords everywhere and they're going to kill you because and, and we had to just trust the pastor thankfully the first time and then after that we started to get to know these guys And every day that we would get to the church, they would be waiting for us at the church. That's a little intimidating, right? Okay? Like all these guys are waiting outside of the church. But they were waiting outside of the church because they had more questions about Jesus. Because every day we would get together with them. And it was just like, okay, this is going to be such an overstatement, okay? But, you you know, I was a youth pastor. And I love students. And and I was going to say, it's just like youth group. It's not just like youth group because they are drug lords and they all had big machine guns in their hands so it wasn't quite just like youth group but 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 take the machine guns away and everything else that goes along with that and and imagine sitting there and it was just like talking to teenagers about Jesus it was it was simply that and, and, and so we, every day we would spend time with them and did that. Another one of the days we baptized all these um, single moms in the community that wanted their babies baptized. And we had this wonderful opportunity to talk with them about what baptism is and what it means and what it means to like, truly like, raise your kid in a house that loves the Lord. I mean, it was beautiful. Like, it was kingdom of God stuff that I've never experienced before. But on the last day we were there, we were hanging out with these guys that were waiting at the church and we walked down to a space and we're talking with them and answering questions about, about who Jesus is and and the pastor kind of tugged on my arm and he asked me to come with him. And we went a couple blocks down and I swear to you, it was just like a like a movie, like a like a scary movie at this point because as we walked down the street there was a dark alley. And as we turned the corner to go down this dark alley, there was like 10 guys with machine guns in their hands, standing right there. And I'm like, oh boy. And, and, and he said, trust me, it's going to be okay. And so we walked forward, and we walked up to this group, and on the other side of these guys with machine guns was the top guy. The guy that was, I, I don't know, Claude, I don't know what their title is in Brazil, but it was like the head drug lord of the community. And... He looked at me and he said, first of all, I want to say thank you for bringing your group to our favela. And I want to thank you for spending time with my guys. And I've heard from them a lot of the answers that you've given to them about their questions about God. And he just said, I was just wondering if you could answer some of mine. And the question I looked at him and asked was very much like this question. Who do you want Jesus to be in your life? Whether you're a drug lord or you're just a normal Joe Schmo that lives in Prairie Village, I think the question remains the same. And as we look at this next defining moment, which this kid, man, I'll tell you, we had a moment together, like at the end, when I asked him that question, he just said, will you pray with me that that would be true of my life? And I got to, like, it was, again, awkward because I laid hands on him, but then... Like, there's just, you know, he got a, he's got a gun in his hand. And I'm like, my hand's like, one hand's on a gun, the other hand's on him. But I'm just praying over him that Jesus would be the Lord of his life. Because he came to that re- realization that he thought he had everything, but he realized he had nothing. And so as we look at this next defining moment, I want to read from a story From John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, a story that's very familiar to a lot of us here. But I think it's a a powerful um, image that Jesus gives. And I believe it's another defining moment, not just for the disciples that heard this, but for us as we hear it as well. In John 15, 1 through 5, it says this. Jesus is speaking. He says, "I'm I'm the true vine. And my father is the gardener. You will bear much fruit, and apart from me, you can do nothing. This is, if you think of the context of Jesus speaking here, this is part of the farewell teachings of Jesus. And this passage is one of the last times Jesus spoke to his disciples before he died. And so there's something very important that he's trying to communicate here. You think about, like, if you knew that it was one of the last times you were going to speak to someone, you would very much think about the words you were about to say, and that's what Jesus did here. You see, these are Jesus' instructions for a healthy and flourishing life and what it can look like for these disciples moving forward. But also, Jesus is not just using the vine and branches metaphor randomly, even though he was in a vineyard, on his walk with the disciples, but it had deep and rich Old Testament significance. In many And in many ways, it was a defining moment For the people of Israel. In Psalm 80 verses 8 and 9. Is perhaps one of the more important contextual texts. That we can use to see how important this text was. Because it shows God speaking of Israel as a vine. And that he took out as a vine. That he took out of slavery in Egypt. And he planted in the promised land. So the vine metaphor was understood by the Jews. In the first century, as a referral to Israel. Jesus takes this metaphor and powerfully and definitely quite controversially applies this metaphor to himself. He even says in verse 1, do you remember what he called himself? He said, I am the what? He didn't just say vine. I'm the true vine. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't just say vine. He says, I am the true vine. Not just any vine vine. But the true one, in other words, the world's hope for true life and flourishing is not found in a nation, but in a person, which is Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone is now the place to go for fruitful living. Jesus then speaks of what it looks like to remain and abide in him throughout this passage. This is the connection, an invitation back into intimacy with Jesus, an intimacy felt by Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2, but also one that deeply was stained by sin in Genesis 3. The Greek word for abide is closely related to the word, to the Greek word abode. It speaks of a place to live, of making a a home, of putting down roots, of finding stability and finding peace. Hillcrest's friends, Jesus is giving an invitation to the greatest defining moment his disciples will ever experience moving forward. And I believe the greatest, experience, the greatest defining moment you and I could ever experience. He's saying, find your home in me, and I will also find my home in you. There's this beautiful interconnected unity when he says these words. As we connect with him, he in turn connects with us. The mutual connection through abiding is this beautiful picture of the outworking of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Where we have this picture of God as three in one. For all eternity, abiding in each other through selfless giving, selfless love, and eternal community. Can you imagine what it would look like for us? If that was just like, we just said, hey, let's just focus on those three things. Like as individuals, but also as a church, we want to be really, really good at selfless giving, selfless love, and eternal community. Imagine what that might do in our midst. You see, in John 15, 1 through 5, Jesus Jesus invites us to experience this deep unity and community found the Trinity. On a practical level, this means that in Jesus, we never now need to know loneliness or isolation or separation. We get to make our home in Jesus, and he gets to make his home in us. This is the level of intimacy that reminds us that God is not distant, and he longs to make his home in us. In many ways, this is a summary of the conversation I had in different terms with my friend in Brazil. That God loves him, he pursues him. That no matter what his life has been like and all the terrible things he's done, there's a God that is absolutely crazy about him and that loves him no matter what. So, as we close today, I want to just briefly share three ways that I believe you and I can live into this defining moment of being connected to him. What does it look like for you and I to, you and I, right here, you and I talking. What does it look like for us to have this defining moment of being connected to Jesus? The first way is to live out his word. The first way is to live out his word. In John 15 Verses 3 and verses 7, it says this, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. If you remain in me and my words, think about this, my words do what? Remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Hillcrest, we have been given this incredible gift, one of the most precious gifts, if not the most precious gift we could ever be given, which is God's word, And when we take time to listen to God, to understand his word, to reflect on it, to allow it to instruct us, think about that, to instruct us, all of us, we strengthen our abiding with Jesus. You see, when God's word instructs us, it doesn't just instruct part of our life, it instructs all of our life. And because we're broken people, oftentimes there are stuff that we push aside. But when we talk about living out God's word, it's about living out all of it, not just the parts we're comfortable with. When we read it and we let it change how we live, his word literally, it says, abides in us. His word is living. It's not just a bunch of words on a page. And his spirit is speaking. New and beautiful things to us every single day. So the word in scripture helps us to abide in him. And his living word brought by the spirit to our heart through prayer reminds us that he also abides in us. So the first way I think we can live into this defining moment of being connected to him is to live out his word. All of it. Number two. The second way I believe we can live into this defining moment of being connected to him is simply to stay connected to the vine. Jesus welcomes us. He welcomes all of us to abide in him because the fruit that it brings us. If you read John 15, 4 and 5, you'll see this. Jesus tells us that the true human, that true human flourishing can only occur through an ongoing Hear these words, connection to him. When we abide in him as the vine, we as the branches get to bear much fruit. And what is that fruit? Jesus speaks specifically in this passage here about love, joy, and friendship with him. But well, we also know that other fruit exists as well. The fruit of the spirit in our lives. Jesus is the vine of, And we are the branches receiving the nutrients we so desperately need. This spirit creates its fruit in us. It creates love. It creates joy. It creates peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things that his fruit, that that he produces in us. And I believe with all my heart. That if we're serious about truly having these defining moments of being connected to Jesus, that this can be the filter, the fruits of the Spirit. Are they coming out in us? Because if we're not seeing these things, maybe we're not attached to the right vine. I mean, here's the crazy thing about, like, this is, this is literally a, a grapevine. And if this thing, in a second we're going to talk about pruning. But like, if left to its own, these are going to attach to anything they can get their hands on. Or not hands, but you know what I'm saying. Okay? I mean, that's the thing about vines. Like, they, they, they'll just go after anything. And Jesus is saying, no, but I'm the true vine. I'm the true vine that I want you to attach your life to. Jesus is making a strong point here that his disciples, to his disciples and to us, that he is the vine and we are the branches. And getting it in that order is critical. We can only bear good fruit. If we are the branch and he is the vine. So the second way that we can live into this defining moment of being connected to him is to stay connected. And last but not least, the third way, as we wrap up here, is to embrace the pruning. Embrace the the pruning. I say this because of the important warning that we see here in this passage. In John 15, 1-2, Jesus starts by talking about how he is the true vine and God is the what? The gardener. God is the gardener. He mentions this because he needs to speak about what, what a gardener does to the branches of the vine in order to keep them healthy. The branches that do not bear fruit are cut off. And the ones that do bear fruit are often pruned so that they might do what? Bear more fruit. He goes further into this passage in verse 6. You can read on to talk about what happens to us if we do not bear fruit. He says that we're disconnected. We're cut off and we're thrown away. Those aren't words that any of us like to hear. You see, Jesus is being sober here. And giving us a clear picture of what this defining moment in life will look like. It will contain a process of sanctification, of cutting, of pruning. In order for us to be the healthiest branches we will be. So that we can bear the greatest fruit possible. And this is critical to Jesus. It's critical because bearing fruit is the most important thing that you and I get to do. So Jesus is saying to us, he will do two things in our lives through his spirit so we consistently and constantly can know his fruitfulness. He will cut off the dead things in us and he will prune the good things in order that they remain good. You catch that? In both situations, in both the good and the bad, we are experiencing the work that the gardener does in our life. And I'm just telling you, the greatest defining moment we could ever have is when we trust our life to the work of the gardener and let the gardener go to work because this is the work that the gardener does to keep us connected to the vine. And so, Hillcrest, do you want a defining moment with Jesus? As we enter Holy Week, as we continue to put our gaze upon him, it's certainly not easy all the time. We go through rough patches, we make mistakes along the way. But staying connected to him and experiencing the pruning that comes from our Heavenly Father is one of the most freeing and important things that could ever happen to us. And it will produce a defining moment that will change everything. So my defining question for us as we close is this. Is Jesus enough for you? It's a question I asked at the beginning and as the band comes forward. It's a question I want to ask you right now. Is Jesus enough For you. We're going to sing a song. It's called Jaira. And it is just a beautiful, beautiful song. For some of you, it's a familiar song. For some of you, it might be brand new. Whether you know this song by heart or it's a brand new song for you, I want to just invite you to let these words be a prayer to the gardener. I want to invite you to be reflective on what the Lord might be doing in your life right now. How he might be speaking to you. And if there are parts of you where Jesus is not enough, I want to invite you, as my good friend Wilma, who's out here somewhere, would say, to repent of those things in your life where Jesus is enough. To offer those things up to him. Repent means to actually turn and go the other way. I want to invite you to do that as we sing this song and as we close our time together.